Well, a happy Wednesday night, everybody, and welcome into another edition of This Week in Hockey. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you, as usually we come to you before a Blues game, right after a Blues game, right before a Blues game. But because of everything that's going on right now in the NHL, the Blues have had to postpone their game on Thursday and rescheduled more games against the Arizona Coyotes. Wouldn't you expect it? Why not just go seven games and call this a first round of the postseason, Joey V? Unreal, man. I mean, it's unbelievable how many times we've played these guys. And and again, you could look at it like, oh, it's a playoff series. This is going to be good for the guys come playoff time. And and like I was telling the fast lane yesterday, Alex, you know, this is not like a playoff series. This is very different because <laughs> it's not a playoff winner go on and a loser go home situation by any stretch of the imagination. Listen, it's still very early in the year. It's the winter blues. Everything's going on. It's cold. There's all these COVID and postponements. And here you are having to play the same opponent over and over and over, which is exhausting. But the one good thing I will say about this playing a team, the same, the same team over this big stretch what we have is that I like the opponent that they're playing. I think, I think if you look at the West, you know, who, who's a team that you would like to play this many at this amount of time, Vegas is absolutely not. Colorado's an absolutely not just from the sheer heaviness and the, the competition. It can really wear on you in a season. Uh, then of course you go to the ducks. You don't want to play the ducks seven times either. Although you're going to get good points. Uh, you worry about your game kind of starting to slide. So you always want to find a team maybe right in the middle that you can beat, but it's also going to push you. So I think the Arizona coyotes actually are a great opponent for this kind of setup because they, they're a team that can be beat on paper. I think the blues are a better team than them. But Arizona has shown great pushback. They're a tenacious, young, fast group that's getting good goaltending. So to me, Alex, not about you, but it's the right amount of balance where if you had to pick an opponent to do this, I, I really truly believe it's going to be the Arizona Coyotes, the team to do it on top of now the Blues can go to Arizona and enjoy some weather. You know, I hear from so many people, Joe, that why can't this team beat Arizona? I don't understand. Arizona's not a good team. This to me, Joe, before the season even began – I knew Arizona was going to be a major challenge for the Blues because the last two seasons, and you know this, you've been calling the games with curbs, they always seem to play the Blues hard. It's kind of like the Vegas syndrome where Vegas always seems to go into overtime with the Blues. Well, Arizona always seems to have a one-goal game with the Blues, and it always seems to be going Arizona's way. And the only thing that I can put my finger on with this is the fact that they are identical to the St. Louis Blues in terms of worksmanship with Rick Tockett. I mean, Rick Tockett is Craig Berube. Craig Berube is Rick Tockett. The difference is Arizona is a fast team, and if you underestimate them, they will make you pay, and they'll make you pay fast. I think the workmanship's a good word, Alex. I'm going to throw another one in there, but it all boils down to Rick Tockett, and it's just going to be structure. You know, yeah. the Blues have struggled against structured teams. And it's not just the Blues. Teams around the league typically struggle on structured teams. A team in the Eastern Conference that I think is a very good comparable to the Arizona Coyotes, at least from what I've seen, has been the Carolina Hurricanes over the last two years with, uh, under Rod Brindamore. The way he gets his team to play as a unit, right? The, the discipline and the players' ability to, to humble themselves, to put their individual stuff aside and play for the team first. Now, that's a hard thing for a coach to do to get a bunch of adults in a room that are making make mega millions, right? You're taking all these young kids and young adults are making mega millions and you're trying to get them to play an unselfish game. That's a very difficult thing to do. And you see it across the National Hockey League, the way teams can, can really be individualistic and not be team first mentality. So what does it take 
to get that? What does it take to pull that out of players, to play team first, to play a structured game where everything you do is about the team and not yourself? Well, number one, and the most important thing is you have to have a great leader that is respected by these players. And I think you look at the teams that are very structured, right? We talked about this before. Craig Berube with the St. Louis Blues. Look at his background, right? What he's done in the National Hockey League, his presence, right? Rod Brindamore. Another guy that's a Hall of Famer, an incredible career, Stanley Cup champion. He fought, he scored, he did it all. Mm-hmm. And to me, the other third big one, uh, along with, uh, is going to be, uh, of course, in Arizona with Rick Tockett. Rick Tockett not only had the penalty minutes in the fighting majors that was comparable to Craig Berube, and, and, and maybe just as tough as Craig Berube, he, was, he scored over 400 goals in the National Hockey League. This guy is a very well-respected man. Where when he walks in that room, initially, boom, these players, they had his attention right away when he stepped in there a couple of years ago. And from what I've understood for some of the players and trainers I've talked to in Arizona, the players absolutely adore him. Not like him, they adore him. They listen to everything he says. They're so, uh, they're so well, he's so well-respected amongst that room. So his message is very clear, it's concise, but, it, but it's, it's, it's listened and it's learned upon and it's actually being put out there on the product. So for the Blues and how they struggled against the Arizona Coyotes, I think they've struggled against them, Alex, because this is a fast, young, feisty team that plays with structure. You know, you look at fast, young teams like the Edmonton Oilers or the Toronto Maple Leafs. They got fast. They got skill. They got all the tools, right? But maybe you don't play that team structure game. To me, Arizona is that good balance of having those uh, tenacious forwards and good defense, good goaltending, but they're playing as a unit. And I think that's why the Blues have struggled against them so much. Joe, does the coaching staff struggle from getting these teams to buy in to the start of the hockey game? Or is this more a personality trait where the Blues just seem to struggle in the early portion of a game because they don't have that fan base to get them going? It sounds kind of like deja vu because we've talked about slow starts in the past with this Blues team but this year it feels more like the bubble where it's just you can't get that energy going without anybody in the building i think it's a little bit of the fans and i think i think it's a little bit of that i think it's the majority of it though alex i truly believe this i think their struggles early on against arizona is because mentally i don't know if they are as sharp and as ready to go why because they're playing the arizona coyotes i know it sounds weird but but listen, I've been in those locker rooms before. I remember I remember those years in Pittsburgh where we were we were flying into Philly and we took the bus to Philly and the rowdy fans. You knew in the locker room, my, my legs were kind of they were shaking, and you saw Sid yeah. across the room, and he was dialed in. Right? It was Philly. It was a big rival. They had Giroux. They had Hartnell. They had all these big names, and they were competitive. Right? You knew it. You were ready. Okay. And then take it two nights later. Right? We're going to the island. We're facing the Islanders. This was the Tavares days where he was their only player. They were terrible. They had no goaltending. I remember the locker room being very loose. Now, is loose a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, I think it depends on your team. But I, I know one thing. I don't think I was as mentally in sh- prepared for that game because why? You didn't need to because they were the New York Islanders versus the Philadelphia Flyers. I think this Blues team, it, it's only natural. But again, th- this is why I think part of the struggle, along with no fans and the energy in the building to start, it, it's a little bit of that, but mostly I think it's they're looking at this team as 
You know what? The Coyotes, on paper, they're not very good. Connor Garland, he makes seven hundred seventy-five thousand dollars the league minimum, and he's their top-line winger. I mean, it's all that kind of stuff. You don't have the Petrangelos or the Stones. You don't have the McKinnons and the Graveses, right? You don't have right. all these huge names on the board as you're getting ready for the game. So I think I think just the Blues kind of are sitting back, thinking we we should go out there and we should let our talent take over in this game. And what what they have found in those first two losses against the Coyotes. It ain't, it ain't that way, man. I don't care who you're playing. This is the National Hockey League, and any team can beat any other team on any given night if you don't bring your work boots. But the good news is on the Blues' third loss they had the other night, the one they lost in a shootout, they had everything there. They, they started to correct that, that, man, this is actually a really good Arizona team. And if we don't bring our work boots, man, it's going to be another tough one. I thought they had a great response. Well, and the good news is they got plenty of work boots from Joe Vitale if they need them. Hey, work boots, red wing boots, Wolverine boots, any kind of boots you need, concrete boots, rubber boots, sole boots. You get a lot of boots at the Vitali household. Boots are important. You know, my grandpa, he was from Sicily. Alex, as you know, yep. Paisano, like, like your ancestors as well, and third grade education. And he always said to me, he said, Giuseppe, again, third grade education, wasn't a very brilliant man, but he, he, left, he left behind a legacy. He said, two things you always got always to gotta keep in mind in life. You always got to take care of your feet and you always got to take care of your bed. He's like, you think about it. You're either sleeping or walking. That's all you do is either you're laying on your back or you're walking all day long. So spend good money on boots and spend really good money on a bed because you're either laying down or you're walking your entire life. That's pretty good advice. The other thing he always would tell me, which I'm not going to put this in the rule book of, of life lessons, but it's also a good note. He said, Giuseppe, and don't ever marry, don't ever marry a ugly wife. He would say, "Hugly, right? Ugly." Uh, he would say, "He go, don't don't marry a ugly wife, because then you got ugly kids, and then you got to <laughs> deal with ugly kids all your life. No one wants to do with that." So that one maybe not as important, but again, good. good advice. Yeah, well, hey, third grade education; those are some pretty good factors to remember moving forward. And uh, Papa Vitali coming through big time for us here. He's Joe Vitali. I'm Alex Ferrario. It's this week in hockey. Let's take a quick break and come back. Craig Berube was on the fast lane yesterday. Had some interesting comments about the power. Play, and I want to get into special teams with Joey V next here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Wednesday night, Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you this week in hockey. Blues off tonight, Blues off tomorrow. We'll be back on the ice Friday against the Arizona Coyotes out in Arizona. That game was rescheduled because Thursday's game was postponed against Minnesota. So the Blues will play Arizona Friday, they'll play them Saturday, and then they'll wrap up the seven of eight games this season against Arizona on Monday. Joe, I want to talk special teams with you, buddy, and we've done this before. It seems to be the uh, the main topic when it's surrounding the St. Louis Blues team. Um, we'll get to the penalty kill, but let's start with the power play because Craig Berube, he was on the fast lane yesterday and had some interesting comments about the power play. Let's take a listen. Well, the biggest challenge this year is just, I think, um, you know, Krug coming in from Boston, great power play there for a long time. Um, and just our four guys that were together last year who had a great year on the power play, those guys just working together and finding chemistry. Like, Krug comes from a power play that did things a lot differently than our power play did here. So it takes time, and it doesn't always work out right away. Even though you have great players, there still has to be, you know, the right mindset, and there still has to be some chemistry. And that chemistry wasn't there, so we split it up. And the difference is we put a Falk up top, and 
they're used to a right-hander, and we switch it up and, you know, put, uh, you know, the Shen line, we put them together, but that doesn't matter. You could have, you could have had those same guys out there, but with a right-hander up there, they're used to that from last year with Petro, and it's just more of a shooting power play from the top. So the one thing that popped out with me, Joe, hearing Craig Berube say that was the switch from a left-handed guy to a right-handed guy, and that was that number one unit, and lo and behold, that first opportunity that the Blues had the other night against Arizona, they score on with a right-handed shot from the point. Is it is something that small that effective to hockey players? Like, if you're used to a right-handed shot on the power play and then it's a left-handed shot, does it mess things up? I think it does because of the angle from which, to me, it all it all boils down to the, the quarterback, which is your top guy. So let's look at this top unit for Tory Krug. Alex, okay, he's your quarterback, right? He's at the top of the key. He's at the blue line. He's his head's up. He's looking for the flankers. He's looking for a shot. He's got basically three options. Throw it at the net, throw it to the right, throw it to the left. Okay. So if David Prawn is to his right as he's the top of the blue line, right in the middle, right? David Prawn's to the right. So now he has an angle to his forehand. Okay. It's a little bit sharper and it's going to be deeper and closer to the net than the angle he would have for Mike Hoffman, okay? So now his angle is gonna be a little bit sharper, and now these uh, penalty kill guys, they're gonna recognize that, right? So they're gonna be a little bit more, maybe more aggressive, because they know that that seam and that angle is gonna be a little bit sharper for Tory Krug. So when they're a little bit more aggressive, and they're gonna come out a little bit more, that's an area for Tory Krug, he's gonna suck someone in, and then he can look off one way and then go another way. So that's number one. Um, number two is, it really just boils down to where these players are more comfortable. You know, I know a lot of uh, fans and there's been some frustration from people. Why don't they put Breko out there for a one-timer, put Hoffman on his strong side for a one-timer. But a lot of it uh, is not only your one-timer. A lot of it is just asking the individual, where do you feel comfortable? And I know Mike Hoffman wants that one-timer position, but guess who else likes that thought? David Perron. Yeah. David Perron has proven himself to be very successful there. You know, it's not something that he just wants it and the coach is, okay, I'm just going to listen to Perron. No, he's gone out there and he's deserved it. He's earned it. Look at that goal that Ryan O'Reilly scored in that power play. He's on his off wing. He drags it to the middle, throws it at the cage, and, and causes a great rebound for Ryan O'Reilly to score. So David Perron, to me, he's got that shooter's mentality where he's smart. He's not just going to go high glove on everything. He's not going to try to put everything in. Sometimes it's a defenseman in front of him. Throw it low, throw it on the pads for a quick rebound. David Perron is exceptional at taking it on his off wing and that drag and shoot, drag and shooting through defenseman's legs and, and picking corners as he can pull the puck to his inside skate and then release it. So that's a weapon. Mike Hoffman in the one-time position, it's a weapon. David Perron on his off wing in the same spot, that's a weapon. So to me, it, it, it's interchangeable. It's back and forth. There has been some good body movement. But for me, the Blues uh, feel very confident knowing that either guy can be on that dot. So with the hands right or left, it does have a little bit of effect. But um, it's not so much as, as a unit and what's the most responsible thing to do. To me, Alex, it always boils down to where these players like to play. When Vladimir Tarasenko comes back, again, he doesn't like his one-timer spot. He likes the left wing. Yeah. He likes the left flanker for the same reason Perron does. He likes to take it, have his head up. He's got a great angle on the shot, or he can drag it and pull it across. So, uh, again, you have to look at what players – feel comfortable in what situations where they feel confident with the puck because those are the guys on the ice as, as a coach something may seem right from up top or by paper oh we should put him here but at the end of the day it's where do these players feel most comfortable because they're the ones out there they're the skates they're the stick they're the minds so put them in a position to not only make themselves successful but also the team uh, and frankly i really liked the idea 
of Justin Falk on that power play unit, Joe, and I think he was um, I think he was the most impressive one, and at least in my opinion, the other night was Justin Falk because he was getting multiple shots up off from the blue line. He creates an awful lot of offense, and right now he might be the most confident player on this Blues roster. So if I'm Craig Berube, I'm doing exactly what he did. I'm throwing him on that number one unit to see what can happen. Well, did you see the way he was shooting with such authority? Yeah. On that one power play? I mean, top of the key, bam. Got the puck back, bam. Got it back for a third time, whack. Like, it just it kept going at the net. I think only maybe one got through. One was blocked and one was wide. But, again, not only are you setting yourself up for success to try to score and get your buddy a rebound goal, but also you're putting a dent in, in the penalty kill. I mean, Jomerson, he had a block one. Uh, Connor Garland sees Falk wind up for one time or that. That, that wears on your team. And not to mention, uh, Antiranta or Darcy Kemper, they see shots coming more, and then they have to see through traffic, and there's chaos and rebounds and sticks flying and bodies flying. You want, you want to create energy. You want to create chaos. You want to score goals. But you do that by throwing pucks at the net, and you have to simplify. And that's the most cliche thing to say in hockey when a power play is struggling. But the Blues have done it. And I really feel when this year started, they looked at Krug. They looked at Hoffman. You already have Perron and O'Reilly and Schwartz. You have on paper what could be the best power play in the league. I think these players knew that. So everyone was trying to make the perfect play like we saw in Boston or we see in Washington, right? I think we have equally, if not more, talent than those two teams. So I think with that talent, these players are like, let's make some great plays here. Let's go back door. Let's hit a scene, right? Now these penalty kill units, Alex, they recognize the talent. Yeah. And now they're, they're tightening everything up. They keep it a box. They keep it tight. They're not going to overstretch. They're going to keep it all to the outside. So what the Blues have done, they've adjusted. They said, okay, it's not there down low. It's not there through the middle. The bumper guy right in the, between the hash marks is not available. The one time across the seam is not available. So now we have to go back to our roots, go back to the foundation, and just throw pucks at the net from the outside. Uh, it, it's a thing where a lot of talented players hate it because you want to set up more plays. But once you do that more often, and then the scouting report on you becomes the Blues, the blues power play is getting better and it's improving, and they're just shooting from the outside – then that's where the PK maybe stretches out a little bit, looks for blocks, and then that's where the seams are opening up. So you got to start back from round one to build up, to set yourself up for success for more fancier plays behind the door. But I think they've done a great job. Everything's been from the outside, shots from the outside, aggressive. Watch, watch the next game. When they win a faceoff and the offense is on a power play, it's going to be one pass, two pass, at the net. It's, it's immediate. It's, it's automatic. It's there. Jaden Schwartz knows it's come there. He's going right to the blue paint. He's looking for a rebound or a tip. So to me, when you're aggressive and you outwork the PK and you throw pucks on net, you inevitably will have success. It has to happen that way. Yeah, well, and I truly feel like, and I'm confident that this power play is going to figure itself out and be very effective. One of the best in the NHL at some point. It's just, it's just going to take some time. The part that I'm surprised by, Joe, is the penalty kill. Now, I do understand that you're without personnel that you're used to. Three main ones, in fact, in Bo Meester and Petrangelo and, of course, Alexander Steen. But what am I missing here, Joe? I mean, it seems like the penalty kill is doing the right things. I mean, they're getting the block shots. They're clearing the zone. It's just it always seems to come down to either a big face-off win on a power play for the opposition or it comes down to the Blues being unable to clear the zone. And at 69% on the season, which is 29th in the NHL, that just doesn't seem right for this team with the talent they have on penalty kills. The first thing I will say, people at the beginning of the year were, how much would we miss Alex Petrangelo? 
and I'm one of them, I thought I was looking more at five on five and power play. Yeah. Right. Cause you think that that's, those are important roles. And, and to me, I don't know why I still think this way, but PK, you just think that, well, anyone go out there, block shots and clear the puck. But Alex Petrangelo was probably the best player in the entire National Hockey League that I saw at one aspect of killing penalties. When the puck was in the corner, it was wedged up against the wall. No one in this league, to me, is better than him scooping that puck off and clearing it 200 feet. Yeah. It sounds it sounds like a simple thing. Just throw it down there. It's a very difficult thing under pressure. You're outmanned, right? And the puck's in a bad area. You got to pull it off the boards, and you got to sail it over everyone's head. It's a difficult uh, it's a difficult skill. And Alex was so good at it. So you mentioned the clears. The clears have been a problem. The clears have ended up on the back of their net. The clears have ended up with 20, 30 more seconds in the zone, and the power play got a couple more opportunities. And it comes down through clears. So number one, Alex, Alex Petrangelo is a big loss, I think, on this penalty kill and the way he kind of was structured and, and getting after it. Number two of the, of the two things that really stand out to me about why the kill has struggled, I think it is a personnel, and it's been a revolving door of who's out there. You know, back last year and the year before, you knew that Bo Meester and Pareko were a pair. You knew that Petrangelo and Bortuzzo, or, or, or Gunnarsson and Bortuzzo, right? You had your four guys or three guys that knew when the Blues were time to kill a penalty, boom, those were the guys that stepped over the boards, and they were with Steen, and they were with O'Reilly. It was a unit. They were healthy. There weren't a lot of injuries, so they were connected, and they were communicating, and everything was going well. Look at it now. Zach Sanford's out there. Mackenzie McEachern's killing penalties. Jacob Della Rose is killing penalties. Robert Bortuzzo was on the IR. Now he's back. Nico Mikola was killing a six on four. Yeah. Right? Right? He was out there, which, which he deserved, by the way. He deserved. But when you have a revolving door of personnel, and you have to have that revolving door because they're still trying to find out who works well, right? So it's kind of a, it, it's a catch-22. But when you have that, the communication, the connection, everything's going to be thrown off a little bit because everyone does things differently. You, you, if Robert Bortuzzo was working with Gunnarsson for two years, he could read off his body language. It's no different than me when me and Chris Kerber call a game. I know when he's done talking. I can I can hear it in his pitch when he drops and he's done. I also know when he's not done. And he, he, he wants to fit in a read or he's got something else to say, so I shut up, right? But it's because we've been around each other. It's no different between you and your wife. You know when she's having a bad day. You kind of get that look. She gives you that look. You feel that look, and you're, okay, I'm getting the heck out of here, right? <laughs> doghouse. It's, it's the doghouse. It's the connection. You've been around each other a lot. So this Blues team for the PK of the last two years, they've been relatively very healthy. They've had relatively the same personnel. So the, those relationships and the connections been there. Now when you lose Petrangelo, Robert Bortuzzo's on the IR. You lose Alexander Steen. Don't forget about Jay Bomeister, right? A lot of penalty kill bodies are now gone. They're trying to find someone to replace it. And by doing that, you have to give guys a tryout. You got to try try different guys in different in different situations and spaces. But with that, you're going to have Nico Mikula going out there, and Oscar Sundquist isn't going to be as sure about what he's going to do instead of Jay Bomeister, who, who he's been with for two straight years, right? So that to me is the catch-22 where you got to have different personnel to try out who's going to be good in this situation. But during that during that tryout, there's going to be struggle. It's inevitable, man. Yeah. I, I mean, you're going to have – and that's what I just feel like I've been saying so much this season of – 
with no preseason, with no training camp, and then the inability to be with your teammates like they usually are, that's going to take the learning curve out of this, and it's going to, to, to take some time for guys to get acclimated to what the expectations are for the team this season. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. Let's take a break and come back and take a wider view of the NHL. We all know that the Blues have had games postponed and rescheduled. But are we getting into dangerous territory right now for the NHL and rescheduling games? Joe and I will touch on that next here on your home for the Blues, 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Wednesday night, Alex Ferrario with you. Hope everyone's being safe out there. Uh, once again, just St. Louis weather coming through with some snow and some icy roads. But hey, that's that's what we call snow days, Joey V. No, no school and you get to go out and you get to enjoy yourselves. Am I right? Oh, buddy, we are going to Art Hill today like you read about. You know, Alex, you and I were talking about, is that not the ultimate St. Louis thing to do? It's what you have to do. I still remember to this day, it would be either the mornings of schools being called off that my dad would take my sister and I over to Art Hill, or the real fun one was when you found out that you were off school the next day, and while it was snowing, you'd go out there at night and you'd go snow down Art Hill. That was the one that was always a winning situation for me. Yeah, we didn't have that luxury uh, this day. We we found out about 6 a.m., but I tell you what, I, I know I used to be as a parent like, oh, no, get the kids to school. But right. these kids now are the good ages, Alex. You'll see when they're when they turn six and seven and, and they're just they're independent. I'm excited to take them. And not only that, I, I decided last week to believe it or not, I built an ice rink on my driveway. Did you really? So I did. Yeah. So I had a buddy come over. We framed up a big box. I had a white tarp, uh, white poly tarp. I put it inside of it, That's filled it with awesome. water. I understand why guys are in love with their lawns. I hate my lawn. I don't ever want to cut grass, but I do love my ice rink. I am out there like four times a day. I got it hooked up to a water, a hot water um, slop sink from the inside. I hooked the hose up. I have a makeshift Zamboni made out of PVC pipe. Oh my god! I'm out there shoveling. I am uh, Zambonian. The kids is finally frozen, so now they're out. They're out there skating. So again, a snow day. I'm like, get out there and and, and rip it up. And you know, I took a little flack from my wife. I'm not going to lie to you. She's like, where are you going to put this ice rink in the backyard? I said, well, I could, but there's about 17 inches of fall. So it's going to be like a foot and a half of water on one end. And there's only two inches on one. So I don't know how it's going to freeze. She's like, well, where's the flattest part? And I go, well, our driveway. She goes, well, are you going to take up like half of it? I was like, oh, maybe I'll do two thirds. So I decided I'm going to take two thirds of my driveway up. I have a buddy come over. We start framing it up. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, you know what? Instead of taking up two thirds, why don't we just take up the whole thing? It'll yeah. be a cool little ice rink. We do that. So now, of course, my pregnant wife has to walk to and from the front door all oh, the way out baby. to the street in the snow and in the cold. <laughs> so these kids, they better enjoy the hell out of this ice rink. I swear, they better go out there and smile and use it 10 times a day. Because, because as soon as that see, rink is gone, oh, yeah, pregnant wife is not going to be happy. We are not doing this ever again. So I'm out there thinking like, come on, you son of a gun, freeze, freeze, freeze. It's finally frozen. We think we got about a week and a half of good weather where hopefully the kids, uh, they're going to have some buddies over and some friends, some neighbors, anyone can use it. And uh, they're going to have a ball with it. Well, let me know if you get any shinny hockey pickup games on that ice rink. I'll, uh, I'll bring my gear over and I'll see you on the rink. So right now it's not holding adults. I have one. Oh, end. that's smart. It's about, it's about five inches. And then, so that, that part's a little soft where it kind of goes, 
and it starts to kind of you feel it kind of and then what it's doing is it's pushing the water from the bottom and it kind of pushes it up the side so it's a little icy so right now the kids are, i think another two days i'm gonna put my fat butt out there there you go see if it will if it'll be able to hold it so <laughs> that's I'll awesome keep, I'll keep you posted on that sounds good i'll have my gear in my car ready to go uh well <laughs> look a lot of things are going around now around the nhl joe we know in st louis they've had to reschedule five different games two against the wild have been postponed two against the avalanche one against the vegas golden knights but we might be having ourselves more issues right now in the nhl and for those of you that don't know Last night, of course, the Vegas Golden Knights, who were out of the COVID-19 kind of protocol that they were under, they played a game against the Anaheim, or uh, yeah, it was against the Anaheim Ducks, and in the game, Thomas Nosek was pulled from it in the second period, and they didn't say anything about an injury, and then after the game, the Golden Knights announced due to COVID-19 protocols, the Golden Knights post-game media availability has been canceled, and since then, they have canceled the practice as well. So, Joe, I, I, I think let's just start off with the fact of the NHL is getting into some dangerous territory right now of being unable to reschedule seasons to get 56 games in because right now, I mean, Vegas has had to postpone about five games. If they shut things down for another week, you're talking about seven, eight, maybe nine games that this team is going to have to reschedule, and that's not going to be an easy task. There's no way that every team is going to play 56 games. It just it won't happen. I just it can't based off of how things are trending, even if things don't get any worse, I still don't understand how the Vegas Golden Knights are gonna pull this off because they've already had kind of the one big pause. It looks like they're potentially gonna have another big pause. So you're talking about possibly three, three and a half weeks of them missed games when you're playing for a a week-ish. Alex, I think think that uh, it's very realistic impossible i've seen some rumors about it and i don't know how much guts there is to them but it certainly does make a little bit of sense uh, to some degree uh, especially in this western division uh, which we're kind of starting to see more and more the eastern had a little bit of a problem with the buffaloes as well but can the league just they take a temporary shutdown where they just shut things down for six to eight days and just kind of like reevaluate everything slow everything down because we've seen some COVID popping up all over the place. Because if you continue this thing, you're, you're curious, is, is the Thomas Nosek thing going to happen again? Where you think everyone's healthy, they go play a game, and then all of a sudden you infect another team, right? right? So so that's that's where there, were, there was a problem. There was a game up in the Eastern Conference, I forget which one it was, maybe the Buffalo one, I want to say. Um, a linesman got it. A linesman got it after they found out there was a player in the game that had it, right? So uh, th- this thing, to me, it, you don't want it to spin completely out of control. I understand the league wants to keep playing games. It's important. But you almost you almost question, is a quick little six to eight-day down eight day shutdown period where you get the guys home, you get them safe, you get everyone healthy, and then you have different protocols moving forward. Maybe maybe the way the locker room is set up. Maybe you know they've already taken down the glass. Do you continue that? Do you just say no fans in the building? I, I don't know. I don't know if the, if the fans have really had any effect on this or not. I, I don't know, but it gives a time for the league to kind of reevaluate things. And then also get back to the drawing board as far as how the rest of the season schedule-wise can work. Yeah. And I think you, you basically take 56 games. You pretty much erase whatever the schedule was. You do a complete reshuffle. And you say, we're going to get in 44 games or 40 games or 46, whatever it's going to be. And we're going to take the percentage at the end of the day, assuming that no one has, has COVID. 
And then you have a complete new schedule based off of that. Maybe, maybe you go to Colorado and maybe instead of playing them twice and then coming home, maybe you stay for four, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the league has some ideas about how to do this a little bit better, but I think that it is very realistic at this point where the league will have to step in as a whole and reevaluate where things are at. Yeah, and again, as Joey mentioned, these are just kind of rumors right now. By no means have we heard any reports that the NHL could suspend at least the season for a short period of time. But let's go down that hypothetical hole there for a minute, Joe. Like, if the NHL were to say, like, hey, seven days, we're going to just stop play, everyone go home, everyone stay at home, and let's try and get this thing back on track – if they open things back up after that, at least they can monitor things a little bit better compared to what they've been doing now. Because right now, it seems the biggest issue is 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 contact tracing. Because I, I've been asked so many times, well, why aren't teams utilizing the taxi squad? Like, isn't this what the taxi squad is for? Yes, but the problem is, if you ask a player where were they or who were they around when they come down with a positive test and they say, boy, I have no idea, because let's be honest, that's how this goes. You don't know where you got it from. Then they can't just say, okay, well, you go away and we'll pull up a guy from the taxi squad because you don't know if they've been around five, six, or seven guys. And so right now, because just different cases seem to be trickling out of control, and if I'm not mistaken, there's about five or six teams right now that do still have their their season postponed in the NHL. If you, if you pause it for a little bit, at least it gives the NHL time to sit back and say, okay, what are we missing here? Because Major League Baseball found a way to get through this. The NFL found a way to get through this. College basketball and the NBA are finding a way to get through this. What are we missing right now for a season to be at least somewhat completed? Yeah, and I think you know the the first initial argument to that is people will say, well, you know, the NFL is outside, baseball is outside, but then you look at what the NBA has done, yeah, and, and they seem to be pulling it off uh, fairly well. Well, and so, some of those NFL stadiums are indoors; they're domed stadiums. They are. Yeah. So you know, as much as that is an argument, I think that probably has some sort of help with this virus. I, I don't think it's the end all be all. So, right. Yeah. A quick evaluation, and then the taxi squad thing, Alex. Yeah, I mean, that that to me was a little questionable at first. We're like, well, isn't this why we have all these six, seven, seven extra guys? But it really comes through that contact tracing. So I'll give you an example. Everyone was kind of up in arms when Vegas postponed their season for a little bit because Alex Petrangelo and a coach came down with COVID. Yeah. Okay? So it's one player. It's one coach. They have more coaches. They have, they have more players. Like, just fill in for Alex Petrangelo and let's keep this thing going. But what happened was, they were on a plane the day before they played the Blues where the entire team was together. So Alex Petrangelo was sitting by somebody. So you have to worry about him. But then he got to go to the bathroom. And so, he, you know, so again, yeah. he was on a plane with his whole team. So you just don't know to what extent the virus has spread that point. So that's why you had to shut down the whole thing. Um, you know, let's look at what would have happened if uh, Alex Petrangelo would have had some of the Blues test positive because he did play in that game. Right. And so that's where the, the question mark becomes. If you continue to play, then who are these players infecting not only on your team, but then, I mean, the ripple effect of this thing could be uh, astronomical, where if one player has it, plays a team, linesmen get it, opponents get it, then they fly to Anaheim and they give it. That's why I honestly thought that Anaheim series would be postponed simply because they were around and on the ice with Petrangelo, who had it. So, again, it, it is a jigsaw puzzle that I can't even pretend to solve. Yeah. 
or, or, or pretend to know what even half of it's going on. And I don't think anyone on top really knows what's going on. But I, I do think if the league can pause things and reevaluate things, start from ground zero, reshuffle the schedule so everyone's playing the same amount of games, and if that can be a legitimate year or you can still have a Stanley Cup champion, I don't see maybe why at this point they wouldn't move forward with that because it, it is it is kind of getting a little bit chaotic, especially in our division. He's Joe Vitale, I'm Alex Ferrario. Joe, what do you say we do a little what's up with that when we come back? I love this segment. I literally stick around the whole <laughs> show for this segment. I love it because we got some good ones. We're going to come back next as we wrap up This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. Final time here on This Week in Hockey. He's Joe Vitale, I'm Alex Ferrario. Blues be back on the ice Friday against the Arizona Coyotes. That's right. You heard me say it right. Friday against the Arizona Coyotes, a 6 o'clock puck drop, a 5 o'clock pregame show. My mistake, it's an 8 o'clock puck drop, a 7 o'clock pregame show from out in Arizona. Saturday, a 7 o'clock puck drop, 6 o'clock pregame show. And then next Monday, the Blues will play Arizona at 3 o'clock. Joe, let's do a little what's up with that, and let's start with the Columbus Blue Jackets. You and I have talked about the scenario right now going on with Tortorella benching Patrick Laine in the game. We we all know kind of what's going on right now but how about this the report now from the Columbus dispatch is that Tortorella didn't sit Patrick Line because he wasn't going out there and giving a, a full effort they sat him because an NHL source said that Line mouthed off to one of the Blue Jackets assistant coaches and Tortorella put him on the bench if that's the case then all props to John Tortorella for saying, I don't care if you're a superstar. You talk like that to a coaching staff, you sit on the bench for the rest of the game. Yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, Curves and I got into a little bit in the, um, at the game. You and I got into a little bit in the fourth period. Yeah. And, you know, it was always with an asterisk saying that, you know, we don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole story. Um, but at this point, the, the dialogue, at least the opinion, has changed from, you know, does Yarmo Kakalainen get a new GM in this, or get a new head coach, excuse me, in this situation? Because you saw that Panarin didn't want to stick around. He signed with the Rangers. You lost Bobrovsky. You lost, um, you've lost uh, uh, Dubois. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, you're constantly, you can't seem to make anything work with any players. So at some point, you got to look at the head coach and say, do we have the right head coach in this position? But now it's kind of shifted where you look at look at the conduct of a player and if the reports on this are true which i really hope they just come out and just say it because that would look really good for tortorella i think that it was everything that was done was probably done in, in the right way now depending on what he said i'm not sure i mean I, i've heard i've heard players mouth off the coaches and say stuff to them that you will not believe really and because because again they're adults like these aren't kids anymore you know i know that you're their coach but they're also they also make more money than the coach. They they have more prestige than the coach. So a lot of players feel like they can chat back. And you know what? A lot of coaches don't mind it. A lot of coaches like that kind of give and take, kind of like back and forth, uh, you know, F you, F you more. You know, it's it's okay. Uh, and then they get to a, a meeting in, in, the, in the office and they kind of have a powwow. They hold hands and everything's going to be good. Because at the end of the day, these coaches need these players to go. And sometimes they need a little kick in the butt. So the dialogue, I don't mind. So I'm, I'm curious about what actually was said yeah. that warranted him to sit line A because I, I again I don't I don't know man but you you look at that you look at that Dubois and Line A trade and I said this a few weeks ago uh, 
the Winnipeg Jets won this trade without question, even with Rossovic thrown into the mix. Yeah. Dubois to me is a more complete player. And, and so if you look at how this whole thing has unfolded, at what point does ownership uh, go to Yarmo and say, Hey, we may need to start reevaluating you, not so much our coach, because this trade maybe didn't work out to the best degree that we were all hoping for. Right. And look, Line is a restricted free agent for two more years, which means he's Columbus's control. But after that, I mean, you're going to have to do some serious mending if you want to keep a superstar talent like that on your roster. So that's going to be a really interesting story that kind of unfolds. And when it rains, it pours out in Columbus, Joe, because not only are they dealing with that, but they're also dealing with Miko Koivu, who signed the contract, of course, the longtime Minnesota Wild. Well, he announced yesterday that he's just going to retire in the middle of the season. Now, I don't think this has anything to do with Tortorella. I think this is more about being a, a an older veteran player who's played in the league and dealing with this COVID stuff, maybe just feel like this is this is just too much for him. But still, boy, what's up right now with Columbus? Man, I tell you what, I just we just need this year to get over. Like we just have to get through I know. this year. I, it's just another small thing, but I mean, you look at what Miko did, and, and I have a ton of respect for him. He, he's been an absolute legend, a pain in the butt to play against, yeah. heavy son of a gun. And I just, I, I think it was less about this Columbus team and, and the organization, and more just about his age, his body, and what's just going on in the world. It, it's hard player for players for now, Alex, to enjoy enjoy the sport they love so much. It really is. Not having fans there. I mean, they're not just people that cheer them on. Fans are the game. Like, without them, so many players have said they took so much of it for granted, and I did too. Uh, fans are the game. They are what you love. And without them, it's hard. And and for Miko, who, who was exhausted and had an incredible career, showing up to the rink, not being around his teammates, not being able to go out to family dinner or team dinners, yeah. uh, being distanced in the locker room, uh, you know, uh, that's, that, that's not enjoyable. That's not, that's not something that he, he's probably looking at like, you know what, man, I'm, I'm done. I'm toast. It, it would have been hard enough for me to bring myself to a position to play games this year with fans. Cause I'm so old, but without all this energy of fans and kind of what this game is all about, I could see how it stepped down. And, and it's unfortunate because Columbus, not only lost a, a, a good centerman, a good face-off guy, he's heavy on the power play, uh, lost a true leader. I mean, he's one of the best leaders. That's why he was a captain in Minnesota, um, ahead of Parisi and all those other guys for so long. Um, he really is a, a, a class act, a true pro. And this is going uh, to be a hole in Columbus that I don't know if they've really found the leadership to, to really back up with Seth Jones. You know, they have a couple other guys in there. But as far as, like, those true Koivu, um, Doan, uh, you know, Crosby, uh, Getzlaff, veteran leaders. I don't know if they quite have that yet because Seth Jones, he's still kind of, he's in his prime. But he's still kind of feeling his way through this thing. So a, a true leader that was lost in Columbus without question. Yeah. He's a guy too. He's a guy too, Alex, that would have been on that bench and would have put Patrick Lining in his place. Yeah. You know, he would have been the guy that taken him aside and say, listen, man, this is not how this rolls. Like we, we don't roll like this. So, so John Tortorella, would look at it like, well, the, the players police themselves, so I don't need to necessarily get involved as much. Maybe John Tortorella feels like he needs to get involved because players like Koivu were not on that bench. Yeah, I mean, that's a very realistic situation, especially when you lose a, a leader like that. A couple more for you, Joe. Uh, let me ask you this. When, were the, when was the last time that you think the Oilers won a hockey game without a point from McDavid or Dreisaitl? Ooh, well, I saw that their 10-game point streak was snapped last night. They still won the game in Ottawa, I believe. Uh, so the last time they've won a game 
without a point from dry or McDavid. Yeah. I think that they haven't done it this year so far, obviously. Um, I'm going to go, uh, let's see. Oh, it's probably been close to a year. No, it's been four years, Joe. November what? November 28th <laughs> of 2017. That was the last time the Oilers won a game without at least a point from McDavid or Dreisaitl. That is insanity to me. Buddy, that is the ultimate stat. <laughs> Where did you get that? And does anyone else know about four years, Alex? Four yeah. Years, four years. So it was. Uh, it was tweeted out on uh, one of my favorite uh, Twitter um, accounts, Bar Down, which has so many just different insane stats and storylines from around the league. And um, uh, uh, one of the, uh, I gotta find the actual name. One of the hockey analysts, he put it out there after that loss that they have not won a game since that. Dmitry Filipovic, and I hope I didn't butcher his name there, but he does a hockey podcast, and he put it out there. That was the first time since November of 2017 I am looking at it right now it looks like that was the first time the Oilers have won a game that at least one of McDavid or Dreisaitl didn't get a point since November 28th <laughs> two th- oh, so they did they did beat Ottawa last night sorry yeah. I said they lost sorry so they did beat Ottawa last night so that's why he put it out I got it. that makes more sense so they beat Ottawa last night and they McDavid didn't get a point Dreisaitl did not participate in a point and the last time that's happened was 2007. <laughs> I cannot believe that would be like saying that the Blues, uh, who's a player that's kind of been in the lineup for, well, it's hard because uh, let's never, just say Terry Single. Yeah. Terry Single has never gotten hurt. Okay. Let's just say Terry Single's been healthy the last few years. So uh, let's say Vladdy did not get a point the other night and the Blues won. That's like saying it's been two, since 2017, the Blues have won a game without Terry Single getting on the score. Can you imagine? Right? Yeah. Can you? I cannot imagine that. That is that, that seriously blows my mind. I, I don't. Mind. I don't know if that's a, a more inc- impressive stat that McDavid and Drysaddle just continue to get points in games, or if that's a sad stat that Edmonton can't win a freaking hockey game without one of their two players that uh, that runs that organization. So I'm, I'm it, torn. It's both. It's both. It's <laughs> both. I mean, put your hands together. It, it is absolutely both. Right. Where the, the, these two guys are absolutely insane. And so fun and so energetic and just uh, just, just exciting to watch, A. And then B, oh, my God, like, you are so, like, top-heavy with these two guys and you cannot put a team. Like, you're telling me James Neal can't score a power play goal and maybe the goalie just locks it up and they win one game, one nothing every now and then. Like, that that hasn't happened. I can't believe it's never happened. Right. Like, that's, that's, like you said, like with the Blues and Tarasenko, that's like saying within the last three years the Blues haven't won a game without a point from Ryan O'Reilly. It's impossible to sit there and say that they've gone that long and not won a game without those guys. But again, just an impressive stat when it comes to two players that without question are two of the best players right now uh, in the National Hockey League. Joe, this was fun, buddy. Uh, I always appreciate and enjoy getting to talk a little hockey with you for an hour. If anybody misses any of the shows, you can check it out, 101ESPN.com or the Blues website. We've got the podcast This Week in Hockey up there as well. Enjoy uh, enjoy the rest of this snow day with your family, Joey V, and I guess we'll talk Friday for a little Blues Coyotes. Yeah, Alex, sounds good, man. Always a pleasure. I 
I've, I've been staring at my basement ceiling as we're doing this from distance, of course, because of COVID. Yep. And apparently my kids had a pizza party a couple of weeks ago, and I'm looking at a piece of pizza that was smeared on my ceiling. <laughs> uh, I, sometimes I just wonder what goes on in kids' heads. Someone obviously flung a pizza at the white ceiling, and then what did they say from there? Was it just like, huh, okay. And they just moved on with their life. Like, do they think fairies are going to come by and clean this up? Or at least let mom and dad know. I, I don't understand. All I can say is I am looking forward to parenthood as soon as this baby gets here. Because everything Joey tells me about what goes on in the Vitali household, I have a feeling is going to be happening in the Ferrario household as well. Bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Alex, this was good, man. This was fun. And I think you actually put that what's up with that. That that may go in the Hall of Fame for the McDavid dry style. That's that what I'm is- saying. Let's let's blow Chris Kerber's mind on Friday with that stat and see (laughs) uh, see what his reaction is. I am excited (laughs) to hear. If he doesn't hear it before then, I want to be there and see his face. Oh, yeah, 100%. Joey V, I'm Alex Ferrario. Thank you so much for joining us this week in hockey. We'll talk to you next week for more of it right here on your home for the Blues, 101 ESPN.